Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for Elliot's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at elias.com slash events. LAS Studios. On a cool and windy day this fall, my four-year-old Lev and I sat on our front steps and talked, like we usually do, about his day at school, what we might be doing this weekend, until, inevitably, we were interrupted by one of the big things he thinks about a lot. next to me? Oh, I hear one right now. What do you hear? A fire truck. The siren. Why do they turn on their sirens? Because if there's emergencies, they have to turn on their sirens. Cars, cars to pull over because they're going really fast to, to save the people who have a, an emergency. Or a car accident can happen, you don't know. Or somebody could get sick or hurt or something, or somebody might have a fire. Lev's a really observant kid, and he's been bringing up these real, big, scary ideas lately. He asks me whether he needs to worry about volcanoes exploding in California because he saw one in a cartoon. He tells me he had a bad dream about an asteroid hitting Earth because he read about what happened to the dinosaurs. And when he's talking to me about fire trucks, he's often bringing up fires, too. I see, I see gray clouds. Yeah, it's not smoke. But it looks pretty gray. Yeah, but those are probably rain clouds. Why? The smoke clouds look a little different, and I would be able to tell if there was a smoke cloud. I saw this smoke cloud before. Oh, yeah. Only one time. That was my first time. When we were coming home from somewhere on Winneka, we saw a big smoke fire. Oh, yeah. What did you think when you saw it? I just wanted to go home and not see the smoke cloud. And it made me worried. But as it seemed so close, I was starting to get scared. Have, have you got a fire at our house before? No, there's not going to be a fire here. Why? Because we're far from anywhere that burns in a fire. Does anybody in our family, do they get their house burned? No. Hmm. One of the parent things that I find hard is figuring out how much I should tell Lev about this big stuff he thinks deeply about. How much I should say about the world around him. And I try to be careful. But the thing about fires is that they're not something he's just seeing on TV. He's been around them since he was a baby. We ran away from smoke with him when he was two. And I'm sure he remembers sitting in our hot house during the pandemic while the bobcat fire burned just over the hill. Air purifiers on and bags taped up over some leaky vents because we couldn't stop the smoke from coming in for weeks. I try my best to shape the narrative in a way that makes my kids feel okay, taking a moment during these intense conversations to remind them. You know you're safe, right? You know that mommy and I keep you safe no matter what? 
And just as I'm gearing up to reassure him, his kid brain is already on to something else. How can birds fly without flapping their wings like this? They're gliding on the air. How? Do they ever go to space? No, that's a little too... When I started working on this season of the podcast, I genuinely wanted to find hope. And in our journey across California, across nine episodes, we found challenges and solutions, and most importantly, so many reasons to be hopeful. Because we know what we need to do. Like put more fire on the land to make our forests more resilient. If you do that timidly, you're gonna get burned. Do it with like a <laughs> Prep our go bags. Energy, fuel for your body, good fuel. Rethink how and where we build. The world seems to be changing so quickly. Hi, you know, it's just... <laughs> what are you going to do? But the problem is, when I look at this big list of everything we have to do to make things better, the amount we have to accomplish starts to feel overwhelming. An existential dread starts to set in. Maybe this has happened to you too. I know it leaves me wondering, how do I even start to talk to my kids about something so big and scary that's only gonna get worse? And how do I come to an okay place with everything that's going on? This is The Big Bird. I'm Jacob Margolis. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. When Lev asks me big existential questions, I'm thinking about my responsibility as a parent how I can talk to him about stuff without scaring him, how to say the right things, while I'm still trying to figure out how to process all the heavy stuff we've been dealing with. So I wanted to reach out to someone who has a lot of experience helping people talk about trauma, who's also thinking a lot about climate change, to help me figure out how to even begin approaching all this big stuff. So yeah, actually, first for the recorder, can you tell me your name and how you like to be identified? Sure. My name is Jenny Silverstein, and you can just call me Jenny. I am a clinical social worker, a licensed clinical social worker. Can I call you a therapist? Yes. Jenny specializes in helping young kids cope with trauma. And over the last five years, since the Tubbs fire hit in 2017, lots of those kids have been worried about fire. Jenny lives in Santa Rosa and had to evacuate along with her wife and their daughter, who was three years old at the time. And while she saw lots of kids process and recover from the trauma of that one fire, she says since then, the life-disrupting disasters that keep hitting, like fires and COVID, have left lots of young kids she's seen struggling. 
yeah, it's been nonstop in a lot of places, but certainly we've we've felt it very heavy around here. And so my daughter is in third grade and has yet to have a regular school year. So fingers crossed that this year will be the one. What do you think? What does that do to a kid? Gosh, I don't think it's fully known yet. The thing about traumatic events when people are really young is that it becomes impossible to separate the trauma response from who we become. And it starts to seem like behaviors that are part of the personality when really the child might have been a completely different person. The trauma hadn't happened. And so I think the impact remains to be seen right now. That's really, I have to say, that's really hard for me to hear because I too have kids And the older one, who's now four and a half, has an absolute obsession with, like, disaster. And I try my best not to talk about my work in front of him. I try to talk him through it, but I feel, you know, I feel really, really bad because... You know, he started to, he started to come into consciousness also through COVID. So it's been, it's been a heavy few years. Right. It's been a heavy few years. I think in many ways as a parent, I feel like we are completely out on a limb. Like this is nothing like this has ever happened before in terms of this level of existential crisis. The biggest predictor of being able to integrate trauma and move through it and have it become something that happened to you rather than something that defines you is the relational health that you have throughout your lifetime. And so kids who are surrounded by loving people have a much, much greater chance of learning to integrate and be resilient. And so I want that for every child, basically. I'm wondering as a parent, how do I start to approach Offering some sense of comfort, but also recognizing that, like, you know, intense stuff does happen in life. I think with really little kids, as much as we can be in integrity and authentic about it, letting them know that we are keeping them safe and they will be safe. We are with them. So even as we were driving away from the house during tubs, that was the message that I was giving my daughter. You know, that language of safety is a good starting point. And then the other thing is with our kids, we do something called co-regulation. They're not really capable yet of regulating their own emotional states, their own kind of survival response. And they look to us for that. So the classic example is if they slip and fall and the parent says, oh, you're, you know, I'm sorry that happened, but you're okay. And then they just move on. But if the parent says, oh my gosh, they start to cry, right? (laughs) So we co-regulate their emotions with them. And so the other piece of it, and this is that we take care of our own emotions, whether it's deep breathing or going for a walk. I mean, we can talk about all kinds of tools, you know, to help regulate our bodies. But the more we do that, the more that we can then help them regulate theirs. Emotional co-regulation. It's kind of like putting your mask on first. I do it with my kids as much as I can, especially when it comes to scary topics. But it doesn't mean I'm not up in the middle of the night spinning with my own existential questions. So what can I do to work through some of those big emotions? That's after the break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. One of the things that's become abundantly clear talking with a bunch of people for this podcast is that everyone's on this big emotional journey regarding climate existentialism, whether they say so or not. I see it in a number of ways. Some people avoid talking about it when it comes up. Others are quick to go to the absolute heaviest place. That's where I find myself living, because I find a sense of comfort in trying to understand the science of worst-case scenarios. Our therapist, Jenny Silverstein, says it's something she's seeing more and more people wrestle with. And even if you haven't been through a disaster directly, what we're dealing with, it's a lot. There's a a general trend towards not really being comfortable with our harder feelings. And I think when it comes to this existential stuff, this climate-related fear and response to disasters, the hard feelings make sense. They show that we care and we can't get stuck in them because then we freeze and we don't find ways to effective action, but we can't ignore them either. We have to move through them. I mean, living in weeks and weeks of smoke is horrible. That feeling that it's unhealthy to do this basic thing of breathing air is really distressing for our minds, never mind what's actually going on in our bodies, which is a stress response to it being truly unhealthy. So it's not like that doesn't count or something, you know? (laughs) How do you even start to lessen the hypervigilance, the feeling of, like right now it's Santa Ana wind season when we're talking and like, I know there's a wind event coming up in a couple days and I'm like, I know that I'm going to be waking up in the middle of the night smelling smoke, like trying to look for smoke. That happens to me now. Yeah, it happens to me now too. I have been in this place for five years now and my being a therapist doesn't make me immune. I wake up under distress when there's a wind event. And the difference I think is that when I know that it is not a red flag warning, that it's not likely to cause a fire. But um, it can cause a fire. <laughs> but like any any one of these events we get during Santa Ana season in California or Diablo winds, whatever, you know, wherever you are, I mean, they can. So like, what, do, you know, I'm up at three in the morning, like worrying about it. Yeah. So part of it, I think, is just being like accepting of we're going to have some days like that, right? So you do all the things that you need to do to prepare If there's actually a wind event and you've done everything that you can to prepare and you're lying in bed waiting to see what happens next. So taking a deep breath where we feel our bellies expand on the inhale. So it's a nice slow inhale that goes all the way down to the belly. And then on the exhale, the exhale is actually longer than the inhale. Can we do it right now? Because I'm I'm feeling a little I'm feeling a little hypervigilant at the moment. Sure. So let's do it twice. So we'll do an inhale of five. So one, two, three, four, five, and an exhale of seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And again, one, two, three, four, five. One, two, 
three, four, five, six, seven. I'm a little lightheaded. I mean, it definitely takes the edge off. And it takes getting used to. If it's not something that you have a habit of, it can actually feel uncomfortable at first. But my very favorite way to teach young children to deep breathe is we pretend first that we're smelling a flower. So the inhale is through the nose and it's a nice big inhale because you want to really smell how yummy that flower is. And then on the exhale, we pretend we're blowing out birthday candles because that's something most of them are familiar with doing. And so in that nice, long, slow exhale that gets all of the candles blown out is a great way to demonstrate to children how to do that. And then the other thing I think about is, you know, your four and a half year old is certainly not too young to start developing some of these coping tools that we've been talking about. We all really, the first way that we regulate is with rhythm and movement. Can we dance as a family? Would that help? Yeah, dancing as a family. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially if it's music he likes, you know, all the things that we demonstrate to children also work for adults. (laughs) No, it worked. I mean, it got it got me there. I'm feeling I'm feeling a little bit more relaxed. Yeah. So the thing about it is with that stress response, we go into that hypervigilant mode because it's how we survive. It's how we evolved to survive. If there actually was a threat, then we want our heart racing and we want our breath short. We want all the blood in our limbs and we want to be, in the case of fire, fleeing. And so that's why that happens. And so to calm our bodies, the one part of that response that we have any control over is the breath. I do think it's really important for us to talk about these kind of like acute responses and lessening the anxiety in the moment, especially, you know, for like you and me when it's windy outside during a dry season and the threat of fire. But I also wonder about the long-term processing of these really heavy things. How do I start to work towards some sort of healthier relationship with these existential crises. Has anyone figured that out? Yeah, I don't (laughs) know that that? anyone has figured that out exactly. But (laughs) I appreciate this idea, if you're feeling overwhelmed by these existential fears and you want to ground and cope more, I think step one is to get back into the present. What's step two? Step two is, is this idea of purposing, which is a little more complicated, I think. Give me a general example if you can. Well, what is the thing that you like to do? And is there a way you can do it in communities? So, you know, if you're a gardener, can you work on a community garden with somebody? If you are an engineer, can you get involved in sustainable design for a local nonprofit? We are, live in a very isolated society, but there's, there's people everywhere doing amazing work. It sounds like to me that even taking, doing small little things for yourself and for the community around you, even if you know that it's not going to, we can step back and recognize that there needs to be giant systemic change as well, that those little things can empower you on some level and make you feel slightly better. And that people should maybe go give one of them a try and, and see and see if it kind of puts them off in the right direction. Yeah. One of the things that has happened here in Sonoma County in the last five years is that there's been a blossoming of trauma-responsive organizations. There's a wonderful organization locally called Land Paths that 
of a lot of land stewardship and then environmental education for kids. And my daughter has attended some of their programming. And for example, over the summer when the creeks were getting really low, they took the kids out with nets and they rescued a whole bunch of tadpoles from the mud in a creek that was drying up and moved them to a creek that was flowing with the intention that they would live to become frogs. And that action for my daughter in a group was really empowering and and incredible for her. She talked about it a lot afterwards. They also, the ones that didn't make it, they held a little funeral for. So not only did they do this empowering action, but they also kind of held space for everybody's emotions in community. And so that to me is like, I I just want to see that happening everywhere. (laughs) A version of that. It sounds like connection is important. It's easy to get overwhelmed by how much these systems need to change. But the amazing thing about complex systems is that they can change suddenly. You know, uh, unexpected things happen. And I think that's, you know, where I hold on to hope even when I'm feeling like things feel pretty hopeless. I just want to say thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Breathe when you're overwhelmed, connect with community, take individual action. There's a path forward. While these ideas I talked about with Jenny might help me when I talk to Lev, or if I need to stop spiraling late at night, ultimately, I can still find reasons to live in a place of pessimism because I don't see us completely fixing the biggest problems we've talked about in this season. Not fast enough to save what we have now. I don't see us shifting our priorities to helping those who've been hurt recover the way they deserve to. But I'm also finding myself softening, continuing to grab on to little bits of hope that float by because, yeah, the stuff is tough, but there are moments. Can I give you a hug? Like when I was back on the front steps with Lev. It turns out the clouds that he was pointing out earlier broke into rain. The start of a really good bit of rain and snow here in California, bringing fire season to an end in our forests, and at least giving us a little bit of a break from destructive wind-driven fires here. But the biggest bit of hope that I found while making this episode was when I was sitting with Lev, after we talked about all the stuff he's been thinking about, after giving him cuddles and hugs. It was time to go inside for dinner. And like I usually do when I interview someone, I asked him, what I might have missed during our conversation. Is there anything that you want to say to the people listening to this podcast? Like what? I don't know. What's your favorite thing in the world to do? Enjoy my life. Enjoy my life. And so what does that look like? I just like as he gets getting to see all the cars and the view. The cars and the view. I hope that you get to enjoy them too. A huge thanks to Rachel, Lev, Zoe, Mark, Melissa, and Sophie Margolis, Rhonda Eisner, and Ellen Primack, 
and all my other friends and family for all the support. I love you. Couldn't have done this season without you. And a huge thanks to the team, everyone who's worked on this season of the show. Our producer is Minju Park, with additional production for the series by Anjali Sastry Kerbachek and Monica Bushman. Bruno Lopez Vega is our intern. Natalie Chudnovsky is the senior producer. Editing by Meg Kramer, with additional editing by Sofia Polizakar. Fact-checking for most of the series was done by Caitlin Antonios. Professor Teresa Greger was our native cultural content reader. Sound design and mixing by E. Scott Kelly, and additional mixing by Doug Gary. Original music by Andy Clausen. Shana Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Antonia Serajido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Our website, LAS.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. The marketing team of LAS Studios created our branding. Artwork for this show done by Dan Carino. Thanks to everyone who came to a group edit or listened to the show in its early stages. Thanks to the team at LAS Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Moeller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live, the Strelo family, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Big Burn is a production of LAS Studios. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.